to come together as a church and in prayer lay every burden down at the foot of the cross. And so I want to ask you to join me as I, I lead us in prayer for um, our world, our nation, and, and honestly, our place in it. Uh, so would you join me, please, in prayer? God, we come before you this morning, a, a gathered people, because um, you are who you are. That's, that's what makes us who we are. Uh, your people, your followers, people who can say, as we have just sung, that because of your work, Jesus, on the cross, to die in our place and to give us new life, we can trade in the ashes of our broken lives for the beauty of the whole life that you give to us. And Father, we look around uh, this morning and, and are delighted to come together because we realize we live in the midst of a world where there is a lot of ashes and a lot of brokenness and a lot of people hurting because of it. I want to pray for our, our nation this morning, Father, and our place as your people in the midst of that nation. Uh, first of all, praying for our nation. Father God, you've, you've told us to pray for um, the success and um, the uh, effective accomplishment of political and government leaders, and particularly in an era where our national government is engaged in impeachment hearings and we uh, receive bombardments of, of news coverage of that on an almost 24-hour basis, and that produces so many different thoughts and feelings and emotions in so many of us and so many of the people around us. But your word still stands. You tell us to pray for uh, kings and emperors and people in authority. So we pray this morning, Father, for our president, President Trump. We pray for the members of Congress. Uh, we pray for all those involved in our state and local governments, uh, even in this media-saturated and highly polarized political environment. We pray for their success at governing. We pray for them to be able to come together for the good of the people of this nation and the good of the people of the world, and through it all to provide an, uh, a context for and to make decisions that, that give um, success and peace and stability in society that would let people flourish. That's, that's why you've told us to pray, so that people would benefit and so that the gospel would have a rich soil in which to spread throughout a society. And so, Father, we pray for our leaders, and we pray not only for our leaders, but, Father, I, my own heart has been grieved, as I'm sure many of us have, as we've seen this last week, uh, once again, shots ringing out on the campus of a high school in Southern California, far away from the nation's capital. But, Father God, this is sadly nothing new to us. And I'm not sure we really know any more what to do with it than we may have several years ago. So, Father, first and foremost, we pray for those most directly affected by that violent tragedy, families that have lost children or uh, been hurt or, or others who are um, frightened beyond what most of us have had to experience. We pray, Father God, that you would comfort the grieving and that you would heal the injured and that you would show yourself great to everybody affected by this in that community of Santa Clarita uh, show yourself great in and through your people and in the grace and the care that they provide. You have the ability to bring beauty from ashes. And God, we pray for these people and ask that you would do that for them. And Father, here we stand in the midst of all of this, your people, wondering our place in this nation with its politics, with its social ills, with everything that goes into that. And God, we feel our own anger, we feel our own anxiety, perhaps, and fear as our own sense of stability is often shaken by these events. But Father, we are your church. We're your people. And I pray that you would help us remember this morning who we are. You've told us in Psalm 31 that it is in you we can take refuge. It's a plea that your righteousness would deliver us that you would rescue us, and that you would be a rock of refuge for us, a strong fortress to save us. God, I pray for every member of this church this morning that that would be even more our experienced reality when we leave this morning than it has been when we came in. As we take every concern, anger, anxiety, or fear, name it, and lay it at the foot of the cross where you are our refuge, where you have given us a hope far greater than everything in this world going well. And Father God, I pray that that would light the fires of our hope to a point where you would shine even more brightly through us, regular people, but, but members of this church who are simply daring to hope that your word is true 
and daring to believe that when you said you are leading us home, it's right, and home is not now, it's then. And God, with that hope, I pray, light a candle of hope, a fire of hope for those around us. We know that there are thousands of members in this ever-growing community, neighbors, coworkers, fellow students at school, all of whom are wondering what life is about and wondering what to do with their angers and their fears and their anxieties. And we pray, Father God, that in us, they would see a picture of just how you can bring beauty from ashes. Make your name great in our lives and through us. God, use this church to spread the light of the gospel that we might see hundreds of people come to faith in Christ over these next few years as a result of your spirit moving in this place. You are not silent. You are not finished. And it is in you we hope and seek our refuge. And so we declare this for our good and for your glory as your people in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, <clears throat> my name is Matt. I'm the, one of the elders here at Harvest Community Church. I also serve as our lead pastor, and uh, it is a delight to get together and remind ourselves who we are and where we're going. In essence, that's kind of what we do every Sunday as the church gathers around the Word of God to be together as one body and hear from and respond to our God. This morning, perhaps in particular, that will be our focus because of where we're at in the Bible. If you've got a a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn it to Exodus chapter 12 because that's where we're going to pick up our story in the ongoing study of the book of Exodus. In the uh, Chronicle of Narnia, titled The Silver Chair. Anybody ever read that story? Um, Great book. As I understand it, that was the last one they were going to make a movie out of and canceled, so you never got that movie. It's too bad. It's one of the good good stories in that series. Uh, In that story, the two um, child protagonists, heroes, uh, Eustace Scrub, there's a great name, and uh, Jill are sent off by Aslan onto a journey to help save Narnia. And they get separated right at the beginning of the story. And Jill, who's new to this whole thing, meets Aslan the lion, the Christ figure, who, who tells her not only that they're going to be on a mission, and she's going to have to pass that on to Eustace when she reunites with him, but he also gives her four signs that will guide them on their journey, that will guide them to success in their mission. And he, he tells her what to look for, and he makes her memorize it. He makes her repeat it to him. And, and after a while, she's like, yeah, I, I got it. I got it. She's just kind of <clears throat> wowed by the whole experience and really enjoying this magical land. And, and in Aslan's presence, the signs seemed really clear. She's like, I got it. I got the signs. So, all right. So he blows her off to Narnia and leaves. And the, she reunites with Eustace and they go off on their adventure. And if you know the story, you know that really quickly they kind of lost sight of what those signs exactly it was kind of something, sort of like, I think, but well, was that it or, or, or was that it? And the kids struggle as the adventure goes on to remember what the signs actually were. Uh, they misinterpret the signs at several different points, which sends them into all sorts of twists and turns and cold and hunger and adventures and threats to their lives that they have to navigate. You see, she didn't think that she would forget the signs when she was safe in Aslan's presence. But once the adventure through a cold, dark world starts... It can be hard to remember who you are or where you're going. That's what that book is all about. And that whole theme comes right out of Scripture. Because when life happens, it's easy for us to forget who we are and why we're here as the people of God. That was true for the ancient Israelites as well. God knew that they would experience that same thing. And so in today's passage, which sort of brings to um, a close, a climax, the plague narratives, maybe the best-known part of the book of Exodus, these ten plagues. We've seen nine of them over the last couple Sundays. We arrive at the tenth one today. But what's interesting about the passage we're going to look at this morning is that very little of it has to actually do with the action of the plague on Egypt and the deliverance that God brought about for the Israelites because of that plague. Actually, most of the time in the text here, God spends um, remembering, helping the people remember who they are. In fact, he gives them signs. He gives them signs. That's what this whole passage is about, to remember what it is he's about to do, to remember in the future what he's doing in the present. The Bible actually spends far more time explaining the signs than even narrating the events of God's deliverance, and that's significant. 
because, as we'll see this morning, deliverance defined their identity, and that's the only identity that would stand in the long run. That's what God wants to teach them this morning. I think that's what he wants to teach us today as well. So we're going to take a look at what happened to the ancient Israelites, what God told them, and then spend some time reflecting on why that matters to modern-day Christians right now. So if you've got your Bibles, please open to Exodus chapter 12, where we start right away with um, an idea that this is going to be something entirely new, verses 1 and 2 of Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of all months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Now, now just pause right there and you think about that. That's a little bit of a strange comment. At least it strikes me that way. If, if your mindset is like, what's happening in this story right now? Like, if you're a here and now focused person, you want to know what's God up to, what mess are we in, how is God getting us out of this mess? And God immediately starts by saying, hey guys, got news for you. I'm going to reset the calendar on the basis of what's about to happen today. In the future, this is going to be the beginning of the year for you when you're a nation. Um, why are we talking about that right now? Can we get on with how you're going to save us and maybe get to that stuff later? But no, God says, I'm not just about to save you from a, a mess. I'm not to, just about to get you out of a pickle. I am doing something completely new, and it will change your future and your destiny for all eternity. This will be a whole new uh, month for you. And so everything that follows is getting ready for this completely transformative, destiny-defining event that God is going to undertake. In verses 3 through 13, God tells Moses to have the Israelites get ready for the deliverance that he's going to um, use to deliver them. He, he tells them to get ready to eat on the run with some very, very specific instructions. There's quite a bit of, of energy and, and ink spilled over the next few verses on how they're to prepare their food. Verse 3, tell the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses. If, uh, he continues to give instructions about the lamb. Drop down to verse 6. You shall keep it until uh, the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And then he goes on, he says, now, when you've, when you've butchered this animal that you're going to eat for a meal, interestingly, you take some of the blood of that animal and dab it on the doorpost of your house. And then he goes on and says, go ahead and eat it that night. Drop down to verse 10. You shall let none of it remain to the morning. Any of it that remains to morning, you shall burn. There will be no leftovers from this meal. You're going to eat where you're going to eat because you're going to take off. He tells them, keep your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. This is the Lord's Passover. And he goes on and on. He tells them not to uh, leaven any of their bread, basically add yeast to the bread dough and let it rise. He's like, you're not going to have time for that. You're just going to throw some dough together and, and bake it and eat because you're going to eat on the run. All of these detailed regulations for exactly how this last meal in Egypt was supposed to be eaten. Now, why all the details? Why the blood on the doorpost? That seems odd. That has nothing to do with them eating. Well, if you know the story, you know that, that God was going to tell them to take shelter from his wrath under the blood of the Passover lamb. But here's what I think is interesting, and it's, it's worth pointing out in this narrative, familiar perhaps to some of us, but, but why did God have them actually put blood on the doorposts of the house? And if you're like me, your initial answer is, well, he explains it in the text. He's going to come through and he's going to strike the people of Egypt with a plague. And that was the sign for the Israelites to, for God to pass over them and not strike them with the plague. So did God need directions? You see where I'm going with this? <laughs> um, this was before GPSs. Was God going to get lost? Did God need help knowing which houses Israelites lived in versus Egyptians, right? And I don't want to judge you, so why don't you guys help me out, you know, mark the doorpost of your house so that I won't get, you know, accidentally off the wrong person. I mean, I could make a mistake. I mean, after all, I'm only God. No, clearly. That's not what's happening here. So why did he have them do it? I think the answer is 
Well, it wasn't for God's benefit because he didn't need the help. It was for their benefit. You see, God's salvation has always been an opt-in thing. Nobody's born into being saved by God. It doesn't matter if we were born into a church and raised going to church all our lives. It doesn't matter if we've always sort of believed in God or been good people or known the right kinds of people or had the right kinds of religious experiences. Nobody is born being saved by God. We have to opt in, and this was their way of doing that. They could have just sat back and waited for God to save them, but instead he gave them a tangible step of faith that they had to take in order to show that they were all in on his deliverance. They were going to bank on him. They had to do something to say, yes, God, I'm in. I'm waiting for you. We should always guard against thinking that we're saved because of our heritage, our church experience, our virtuous ideals, or our moral lives. The pattern is clear. They had to take a step of faith in order to take part in God's deliverance. And so do we. Well, as the, the story goes on, it gets perhaps even more intriguing, as if God didn't spend enough time describing the details of this final meal that they were going to eat before he sent them out, including marking the doorpost of their house with the blood of this uh, lamb that had been sacrificed. In verse 14, the conversation takes another shift. He says, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout all your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Now, pause, pause the ship here for a second. Stop the ship. Here, here we, it's like the same thing in verse one. Why are, why are we talking about this? If you're a here and now person, what is God doing for me right now? This doesn't make any sense. God, our lives are on the line here. Could we get on with the you saving us part? <laughs> and then maybe once we're saved, could we then maybe, then we've got the time to go back and, and, and have you help us understand how you want us to remember this? God hasn't even saved them yet, and he already spends the next seven or eight verses telling them in detail how this is going to become a whole new thing for them and their descendants forever. You've got to remember this. You've got to remember this. And so he gives them the instructions from verses 14 down to 20 for an annual Jewish feast known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He says, for, for centuries, you guys are going to, like normal people back then, you know, make bread and put yeast in it and rise it. But one week out of every year, you eat unleavened bread. You just know, you don't let it rise. And when your kids stop and ask you, Dad, why do the biscuits taste like rocks when I crunch down on them? Like, what, what's the point of this? We've got yeast. Aha. You tell them. You tell them. This is a remembrance ceremony. And what's more, it gets really interesting because any Israelite in the future who refuses to take place in this annual ritual gets kicked out. Seriously. Let's keep reading this. Verse 15 of Exodus chapter 12. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove all leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day to the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Whoa, what? Make the point clear, he repeats it. Drop down to verse 19. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. And now God even clarifies more, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. If there's a, a foreigner, somebody who's not ethnically Jewish, but they're living with you, of course this law applies to them, but God said it doesn't even matter if you are ethnically Jewish. It makes no difference. If you do not participate in the Feast of Unleavened Bread forever, you are kicked out of Israel. What is going on here? There's at least two important questions that arise from this, this passage so far, and we haven't even gotten to the action, to the deliverance. The first question is, why is this annual feast so important to God that he's got to give all the detailed instructions about how to keep it before the people are even saved? 
And they just want out. And God says, no, 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 I'm trying to pull your attention up wider to see the bigger picture. Why is that so important to God? That's the first question. Second question, what is this being kicked out thing all about? Why would God kick somebody out of his people simply for eating a piece of bread that had yeast in it? Is that really that big a deal? These are important questions. I think they're actually the key questions for the passage this morning, but to get the answers, we're going to have to read on. Well, finally, as you get down uh, to verses... um, to verse 28, verse 21 through 27, Moses essentially calls the people together and passes on all of God's instructions as God had just told Moses and Aaron. Now in verse 28, uh, finally you get the action. Three groups of people in the next few verses take action. Israel acts, God acts, and then the Pharaoh and the Egyptians act. The Israelites act in preparation for what God is going to do. God acts, and then the Egyptians act in response to what God does. Verse 28, one simple verse. The Israelites act. They obey the Passover commands in preparation for God's actions. Then the people, verse 28 of Israel, went out and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. They opt in. They probably don't fully understand why. They just know God said to do this, and they're like, I'm in. If it's God's thing, I'm in, so I'm going to do it. They kill their Passover lambs. They put the blood on the doorposts, the whole nine yards. So they opt in. Secondly, God acts. And it's fascinating that in almost two chapters that focus on this tenth and final sort of penultimate climactic plague, exactly one verse is given to describing the action. Verse 29, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne all the way down to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. It's helpful to remember where we've been and to recognize that this is chapter 12 of an ongoing story because this single verse forms the other bookend of a conflict that started clear back in chapter 4. In fact, God prepared us and the Pharaoh and his people, but even us as readers, to understand what all of these 10 plagues were about. Clear back in chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. God told Moses, thus you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, God, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. You remember the context of chapter 2, where the Pharaoh was doing that. He was literally killing the children, the, the male babies of the Hebrews. It was infanticide. It was genocide. He was just seeking to wipe them out because he believed he was God. And as we saw back then, this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3.15 where the serpent and the seed of the woman are said to be at war with one another. God says, I will send somebody, a seed of the woman, a descendant of, of the woman, a savior, and he will be at war with you, Satan, and he will crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. And ever since then, the conflict between Satan represented as the serpent seeking to destroy the seed of the woman has been playing out on the pages of scripture. It plays out in the conflict between Pharaoh and God where the Pharaoh seeks to destroy his children. And God says, if you don't let my people go, I will prove to you the hard way who's really king. And here's how I'm going to do it. And Pharaoh didn't listen, and he didn't listen, and he didn't listen, despite nine opportunities, really ten opportunities, to repent. He refused to do it. And so God acts. He does what he said he would do. He enforces the terms of the debate. And as a result, he has victory. He is seen to be the true God. This is the one thing the Pharaoh did not want to acknowledge. He was so repulsed by the idea of anybody else being God, anybody else defining for him what was right and wrong. He is now absolutely forced to face reality. And so the final group that acts is Pharaoh himself in verses 30 to 32, and then his people after that. Pharaoh rose up in the night, verse 30, and he and all his servants, the Egyptians, there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. So he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, 
Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go and serve Yahweh as you have said. Take your flocks and herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. This is a man who is finally surrendering to God unconditionally this time. If you've been with us the last couple Sundays, you've seen his interactions with God before. I refuse, I relent, I negotiate, I agree, then I back off and seek to change the terms. He's always fighting with God, and he finally says, I'm out, unconditional surrender. God is bigger than me. Now, we're going to see next Sunday that his heart is actually still opposed to God, despite this. Remember Ron Frost here last Sunday was talking about the meter of somebody's heart, you know? As the plagues went on, the Egyptians gradually started to like move. They're like, hey, uh, Pharaoh, like, okay, God, let him go, let him go. But he's like, nope, his heart was just unmoved. It was hard. It looks like his heart has been moved. Next week, it's going to turn out that that's not the case, but you have to come back next week to see that story. What happens is that the Israelites... The result of all this action is that the Israelites are are rescued. They're delivered. Verses 33 to 36, the rest of the Egyptians were urgent with the people to get them out of the land in haste. Man, get out of here. (laughs) Ever since at least the seventh plague, they've been telling their own king, the Pharaoh, man, get rid of these people. This is not worth it. And he's been telling them, no, I am God. I will do it. And so finally, when he gives the green light, they're like, get out of here, go, here, take money, they're like, we don't have any money, here's some money, go, and so they take a bunch of gold and silver and livestock and everything from the Egyptians, and they just literally kick them out as quickly as they can, get out of Dodge, they had to run with their cloaks on their shoulders and their bread in the kneading bowls, hence they didn't have time to leaven it, verse 36, the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they let them have what they asked, and thus they plundered the Egyptians, What a complete turnaround from chapter 5. You see, when you read the biblical narrative and you see the picture God is painting, there's some amazing things happening here. You may recall from chapter 5, right before the plagues started, Moses had his first encounter with Pharaoh. Let my people go. How did that turn out? Pharaoh laughed in his face. Give me a break. In fact, he was so smug in his own power, he used all of his power to clamp down on the Israelites and make their lives even worse. And so what had before seemed difficult now seemed impossible. Chapter 5 ended with the Israelites totally giving up on God and Moses. They're like, we listened to you, and now it's worse. We have no power, you have no power, and by implication, God has no power to release us from this powerful Pharaoh. And even Moses' heart is quailing and doubting if God's really going to come through. And then God starts chapter 6 in verses 1 and 2, right before the plagues begin. And here's how God describes the way things are going to go down. The Lord said, Exodus chapter 6, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send out the people, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God said, I'm not just going to convince him to let the people go. (laughs) I'm going to change this guy so much that every ounce of strength that he is using to keep you here as slaves and abuse you and kill you, he is going to use all that strength to get rid of you. He won't be able to wait until you go away. That seemed ridiculous. Back in chapter 6. Now back to chapter 12. What just happened? The people are like, get out, go, here's money, out. But I got to go, don't go get any, get out of here. They're literally throwing them out exactly as God had said. Never doubt God's ability to change a person's heart. That's hard to say because I do, I think, on a fairly regular basis. I think one of the biggest stumbling blocks to our praying for people to come to faith in Christ and sharing the gospel with people is believing that we know somebody who will never change. And if I'm honest, I look at some of my neighbors and some other people I know that way, and it, it, it just it kind of takes all the, the air out of the balloon of my desire to pray for them, and I'm very inconsistent. Why am I inconsistent? I think it kind of goes back to this stuff. Do I really believe God can change a person's heart? This is God we're talking about. And he has the ability through any means necessary to change even the hardest of human hearts towards him. 
We need to pray for him to do that. Well, there it is. The Israelites are rescued. They're, they're on their way out. And what does God start talking about right away? Chapter 12, verse 43. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. Whoa, here we go again. Here we go again. They're, they're not even out of Egypt yet. We haven't even crossed the Red Sea yet. That's still coming. They've barely stepped foot outside their houses. They're just taking their first steps toward freedom, and God wants to talk about the Feast of Unleavened Bread again. This future uh, remembrance ceremony that they're supposed to have, and he goes on and gives some fairly detailed instructions about who can participate in it and who can't. We're kind of back to our questions. Like, why is this so important to God? And for the remainder of chapter 12, and pretty much almost all of chapter 13, down to verse 17, which is where our, our text ends this morning, he describes the future of this Feast of Unleavened Bread, this one-week feast commemorating the Passover deliverance from Egypt. Why is this so important to God? Why did they need a remembrance ceremony so desperately that God wanted to talk more about that than the actual deliverance itself? I think this text shows us the answers to that question for them. And I don't think it'll be hard to see how it has direct bearing on us as God's people today. There are at least two answers that we see here. Why was this so important to God? First, because Passover was what defined them as God's people. Passover is what defined them as God's people. Secondly, so it, it, was, it was kind of a group thing. There's a group reason. And we'll talk about that in a second. Secondly, participation in the Passover is how individuals identified themselves as part of God's people. It's how they opted in perpetually in the future. Let's take a look at each of these briefly. First, why is this ongoing remembrance ceremony so important to God? Why did they need to remember, remember, remember who they were? Because it was in this very act of being delivered by God that they, that, that it was this very act that defined who they were. You see this clearly stated in the intention to teach future generations about God's deliverance. You're still in chapter 12, you go back to verse 26, where Moses was explaining it to them. He says, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Why are we doing this Passover thing again, dad? Here's what you shall say. It was designed to provoke the question and to give families and, and the whole group of people a platform to teach this is who we are. Because look at his answer. What do you mean by the service? Verse 27, you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. Again, in chapter 13, verse 8, he's describing the feast of unleavened bread and how they're going to, once they get to the promised land, do this annually. And he says, you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. You see what's happening here? Future generations would, in essence, say, what is any of that? Like, oh, that? Cool, history, great, fine, I guess. What does any of that have to do with me? Answer, everything. <laughs> everything. Because, son, daughter, you're part of us, and us is defined by this event. You have to know this event because this event defines who we are. Are. This is our national identity. God's, God's choice of us, his deliverance of us, and his establishment of us in the promised land is what makes us his people. That's how it worked for the Old Testament Israelites. To be an Israelite was to be one of the people who could say we were in slavery in Egypt, but we took shelter under the blood of the Passover lamb, and then God delivered us from our slavery and, and, and certain death. And now he's leading us through this long and difficult wilderness journey, but we're headed toward the promised land where he will be with us and bless us forever. That story defined what it meant to be an Israelite. And, and notice how this is the key defining issue, not even their ethnic identity or their nationality. This is shocking for some of us who have been conditioned to read the Old Testament as, you know, the Israelites are God's people because they were Jewish. Like, their, their, their descent from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is what defined them as God's people. That's not what this text is telling us. 
The key defining issue is that not even their ethnicity is what made them the people of God. It was his deliverance, which explains that puzzling verse 19 we talked about a couple of minutes ago of chapter 12. For seven days, no leaven is to be found. If anyone eats uh, what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. And then he clarifies whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. See, God's being very clear. Even if you're in the Old Testament times, if you're ethnically Jewish, you're a descendant of Jacob, and you can prove it, but you refuse to participate in the Passover commemorance, then you're not one of the Israelites. You are not part of God's people. What is God saying? Your ethnic identity is not what defines the core of who you are. Your willingness to participate in my salvation is what defines you as my people, as a group, you see? If you refuse to opt in by participating in the feast, then you're saying, I I don't want to identify with God's salvation. God says, you don't want to identify with my salvation. You're not part of my people. Oh, but I got all the ethnic credentials. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You could be a foreigner or a native. Either way, if you don't opt in, you're out. You're out. Even in the Old Testament, the key issue that defined their membership in God's people was faith, their willingness to bank on what God did, not their ethnicity. That same point is made again down at the end of chapter 12 in verses 48 and 49. They had rules over who could participate in the feast. Chapter 12, verse 48 says, if a stranger, that is somebody who's not ethnically Jewish, shall sojourn with you, live with you for a while, and if they want to keep the Passover to the Lord, guess what? He can. All the males in his house have to be circumcised. That was the basic rule for entry uh, in the Old Testament. People of God. But if he's willing to do that, then they may come near and keep the Passover. And it shall be, he shall be as a native of the land. It won't matter that he's not ethnically Jewish. He could be a Canaanite. The very people that God was sending the Israelites to go punish. But if he comes and says, I want to keep the Lord's Passover, then he's in. He's in. And by the same token, ethnic Jews who refuse to participate are out. Verse 49, there shall be one law for the native and the stranger who sojourns among you. It does not matter what your ethnic background is. You either participate in the Feast of Unleavened Bread and you're part of the Israel. You're part of the Israelites. Or you don't and you're not. Will you opt in? That's what God is saying to his people. And you know, the same is true for modern day Christians. Because Exodus, as we've said many times, is a model for what it means to follow God at all times. Now, we don't have the Passover lamb that we kill to roast and eat because we actually do have a Passover lamb that's already been killed. And that was Jesus Christ on the cross. The Bible says he's the ultimate Passover lamb, the one who died in our place, whose blood was shed so that the wrath of God against our sins would pass over us because it landed on him. Put it this way. Just like an ancient Israelite, a modern Christian with a few wording changes can say much the same thing. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means that that I'm somebody who was a slave to my sin, destined for eternal death. But I took shelter under the blood of the true Passover lamb, Christ on the cross. And because of that, God delivered me. I didn't save myself. He saved me by paying my sin's penalty. And he is now leading me on a long and difficult and sometimes frustratingly and agonizingly painful journey through a wilderness of this world. But I know I am headed toward the true promised land of heaven, eternity with God. That's what it means to be a Christian. That deserves an amen. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what a Christian is, which means that, think of ourselves, brothers and sisters, if this is your home church, let's think about this together. What this means is that we, let's just, this applies to every church, but let's think about us personally for a moment here. We are not defined by things like ethnic background or socioeconomic status or political leanings. Right? You don't need to be white or white collar to fit in this church and find, not just fit, find a home here. You can look different, you can smell different, you can eat different, you can work different, you can speak different, but if you identify with the blood of Christ, having repented of your sins and embraced Christ as your Savior, you are part of us because that's what us is. That's what us is. 
And it also means, and I'm glad to hear that applause because it resonates with your heart. It should. It also means that we don't identify with a particular political stance. This doesn't mean that we don't have political opinions. Of course we do. What it means is that none of those opinions define what it means to be a member of this community. If you have embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can be politically conservative, politically liberal, politically moderate, or just politically disgusted. (laughs) Whatever works. (laughs) Sorry, that was crass. But you get the point, right? You get the point. I'm trying to be a little funny. I'm trying not to be crass. But you, you can be any of those things to be one of us because those things, while they're not unimportant, they're not ultimately important and they're not definingly important. I think I just invented a word. They don't define who we are because that's not what defines us. What defines us is being saved by the blood of Christ, identified as one of God's people and on our way to our eternal home. So here's the question. Is that what people experience when they walk through the doors of this church? Some, I think. Some. Some not. That question's been rattling around in the back of my head and the heads of some of our elders for a while as we think about, as a church, how do we make the gospel of Jesus better known in our community? That's something we want and need to do better And maybe before we talk about how to go do that outside these walls, maybe it starts with a deep look inside to say, am I really defining my identity and my membership even in my own church on the basis of lesser things? So a question, and I actually want to encourage you to pick this up in your community life groups this week, especially addressed to members of our church here. If Harvest was was perfectly defined by the gospel rather than by these secondary things, how would it look different? Like if it was perfect, which will never be perfect, but, but if we were hypothetically perfect in that, in defining our identity as a group by the gospel, what, if anything, would change? Follow-up question. How can you, as a member of this church, contribute to that change right now? Because we'll never make the gospel of Jesus known if we build our identity on our ethnicity or people who live like us or think like us or act like us. We only build our identity on the gospel of Christ because we are his church and he gets to decide what our identity is and he says, it's me. It's me. So the first answer to the question, why is this feast of unleavened bread thing so important? Because it defined their identity. I think I got so carried away I missed a slide. I did. Uh... If you want to take all that in, you can get it later. Okay. Um, actually, no, I think you're good. You're good. Okay. We're on point number two, so you can back up and take point number one. This isn't being recorded, is it? All right, we're going to move on. <laughs> because there, it, it was a group thing. It defined who the group was, not their ethnicity, none of that. It was their willingness to opt into God's salvation. That's what defined them as a group. Now, that's a group thing, but there's a second point here, too. It's more of an individual thing. Individually, as individual men and women, they identified with God's people, defined by his salvation. They identified with being part of God's people by participating in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we've already seen that, right? If you don't do this, you're out. So what's God saying? If you want to be in, this is how you get in. (laughs) You... You, you put the blood of the doorposts on your house. Or in later generations, when there's no doorposts in Egypt to put blood on, what are you going to do? You're going to do the Feast of Unleavened Bread that commemorates. It's a way to ceremonially say, yeah, just like my ancestors, I'm in. I'm taking shelter under the blood of God's deliverance at Passover. If you do that, God says you're part of my people. If you don't, you're not part of my people. This is how you become part of my people. You see, there was no category here. There's simply no category for an Israelite who did not participate in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It explicitly rules that possibility out. You either do one or the other. You're either an Israelite, which means you do, or you're not, which means you don't. The core of their individual identity was that they, as people, belonged to the larger people of God, saved by his grace, and on a journey to the promised land. That was their individual identity. Like, that's that's who I am as a person. 
I am part of God's people saved by his grace, and my destiny is to be with this people under his grace on the way to the promised land. Now, we know our Old Testaments, many of us, well enough to know that that the people of Israel struggled with this from the get-go. I don't want to identify with God. I want leeks and garlic, not manna. You know, we want a king like everybody else has. We, you know, we always want to be like somebody else. We always want to respond to what's right in front of us right now. And we forget who we are, just like Jill and Eustace did in C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair. We forget who we are and where we're going and what we're doing. We need to remember. Even today, we can experience the same thing. We live awash in a society that is throwing out hundreds of different kinds of performance identities. And they're very, very different, but they all have one thing in common. You can feel good about you based on what you've done and what you've been. It starts early, right, in school. Some kids are pretty and popular, some are athletic, some are smart, and then there's the rest of us. (laughs) And we all sort of gravitate toward our, you know, social spheres or our athletic achievements or our academic achievements, and we want to trumpet that. Social media helps us do that even more, right? And so our schools are like notoriously cliquish places. Because everybody's trying to grab their identity and say, this is who I am because this is what I can be. It continues after high school. You graduate. Some go off to a four-year college. Some go to community college. And sometimes they feel ashamed because they didn't go to a four-year college as if that's more impressive. But somebody else goes into the military or into a transition program or straight into the workforce and doesn't go to college at all. And then they feel like they're inferior to everybody who went to a vocational school, who feels inferior to everybody who's here, who feels inferior to somebody who actually knows what they want to major in and I don't. And it goes on and on and on, right? And we're constantly comparing. Who who am I? And and am am I worth something? Well, my answer to that is here's what I'm doing. And if I don't have confidence in what I'm doing, I feel this like internal angst because I don't think I measure up well. It's a performance identity. And it will always let us down. Then people continue to grow in their 20s and increasingly their 30s. Some get married, but some stay single, sometimes feeling inferior because I haven't gotten married yet. Of course, over time, some of those marriages end, making some of us feel second class when we come to church because I'm a divorcee. I wasn't able to keep a marriage long term. And so my identity is shaken. Eventually, kids come along. Some seem happy. Some have these cool family vacations and those like to die for Facebook pictures and those really cool holiday gatherings. And then there's the rest of us. And then those kids grow up and they make their own choices. And some of them say, I want nothing to do with God. And they walk away and they do their own things. And sometimes they even get into destructive habits that destroy their lives. And as parents, our hearts break, of course, partly because we love our kids and our hearts should break for them. But then we feel the shame of saying, well, how come my kids didn't follow Jesus and that other person's kids did? I must have been a bad parent. I did it wrong. And there's the anxiety because it's a performance identity and it will always let us down. And you know what? We could go on and on with this, but you get the idea. And and if you're one of the really blessed, fortunate few, that happens to navigate all the way to your, I don't know, 40s, 50s, something, and you avoided most of those landmines? Like maybe you did reasonably well in school and you've had a reasonably happy family life and a reasonably happy career and your kids are reasonably happy, Jesus-loving people, and life looks really, really good? Then you get to face maybe the most dreaded question of all, usually about that time of life. Is it enough? Anyone relate? I can't personally. I'm 48. You start thinking like, wow. I mean, Lord willing, I'm not like ready to be done yet in this life, but you start realizing that's an awful lot closer to a half a century than you think. Like, I'm not going to be around forever. What? I don't really have like loads and loads of regrets, but even so, there's like this, but, but, but am I? Everybody experiences this. We call it midlife crisis in our culture, right? Is it enough? That is, you face that question if you're brave enough to face it. Most of us aren't. We'd rather just get on our phones and distract and go have parties and take vacations and go, 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 so we don't have to think about it. Because we fear the answer. And our very fear is a sure sign that our identity is built on performance. A performance identity will always let you down. Sooner or later, it's inevitable. At least if the performance is mine. 
We need to remember, just as the ancient Israelites needed to remember, the only identity that will never fail us. And it's one that is based on performance, but it's based on God's performance, not my performance. I simply took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, and God saved me, and God is guiding me, and God will bring me to that place. That's who I am, his son, his daughter, by his grace. And to help, God has given us remembrance ceremonies, just like he gave the ancient Israelites, because he knows, even as a Christian who understands all this stuff, I need to be reminded and re-reminded and re-re-re-reminded over and over again. The two performance ceremonies that he's given us as a church are baptism and communion. That's our new Passover, our new Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper or communion on, guess what Jewish holiday? Passover. He says, guys, this is the new Passover because this is what Passover is all about. I'm the real sacrificial lamb that's about to literally be sacrificed for your sins. And so you eat this bread and you drink this cup as an ongoing, regular way to opt in and say, I am one of his people. I am one of his people. We just experienced communion last Sunday. We will do it again next Sunday. It is so easy for that to become like a rote routine, like, oh yeah, we do this. Have you ever stopped and said, why do Christians always pass around this bread and drink from this cup? I mean, it's not even good wine or anything. I mean, like, what, what do, why do we do this? That's the point, to make us ask that question and to remember that our identity is based on him, not on ourselves. The other sign that he's given us is baptism, a one-time sign whereby a person who comes to faith in Christ immerses him or herself in water. Man, if you're a Christian, that's so normal. I gotta tell you, like, that's weird. Have you ever thought about that? Why do we do that? Why do Christians all over the world and all cultures insist on, like, dunking people in water? Like, what is the purpose of that? Dad, why do we do that? Great question, son. Great question, son. Because in the act of physically being immersed in water, a person is identified with being uh, killed and risen to new life. The old sinful nature is dead and the new nature has come. It also symbolizes being washed clean from our sins. All of it is pointing to, the, to, to Christ. It's a way of saying, I am a person who is identifying with the people of God. I took shelter under the blood of Jesus Christ. He's changed my life and I'm going public with that. It's not about the person getting baptized. It's about the great God who is saving that person. Amen? We've got an awesome opportunity this morning because we get to experience the baptism. And we're going to do that just a little bit later in our service. Right now, I want to ask the music ministry team to come back up and lead us in a response to this. Because, brothers and sisters, we need to remember that, that deliverance defines our identity as a group and as individuals. Deliverance defines the only identity that will truly stand in the end. We're going to sing together as a church about the love that God has for us to deliver us and the freedom that comes from his salvation. And then we're going to get to experience a baptism. And then we will go out with one final song singing. So would you stand with us, please? Father, we come to you recognizing that we get to call you Father because you have delivered, because you have chosen, because you have rescued, not because of what we've done, not because of who we are, who we're related to, simply because of you. And so God, as your people, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We celebrate baptism. We thank you for these remembrance ceremonies, and I pray that the truth of who we are would penetrate to each heart this morning in a way that is so transformative that those who do not know you would be drawn to give their lives to you and experience forgiveness, and that those of us who do know you would be shining beacons of a greater hope. God, for our good and your glory, we pray these things. Amen.